So, um, if you are visiting here today, uh, just know we don't like to embarrass people at all. Um, and um, so, that's, you know. Have you ever been to the cinema where they've fleshed up a picture in the adverts and you don't know if you've seen it or not? Or something like that. Um, yeah, okay. Right, so... Um, <sighs> right, okay. Good, good, good. Um, I've had a lot of uh, different kind of inputs over the past couple of weeks. It's been manic. Uh, even the kids have said they've not seen me much. I've not, I've not been around many evenings with lots of different meetings, lots of different things. And the thing I keep on finding is a kind of um, a desire stirring in God's people for revival. We had a fantastic time last Sunday with David just uh, speaking and bringing those different things about the presence of God. And I just have that increasing desire with me for the presence of God to come. And uh, I was reminded just as we're sitting here today that, 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 um, of one of the parts in Exodus, we just flipped the hey. Who's got their Bibles? I've been encouraging you to bring your Bibles. If you've got your Bibles, you're a good person. If you've not got a Bible, that's all right. But if you've left it at home, you're the people I'm thinking of. Right. Just Exodus 33, verse 15. It's, uh, it's Moses saying, If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, Don't make us go up from here. Yeah? It's actually just after God has said, My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. So it's interesting that Moses' response is when God says, My presence is going to be with you, he says, Yeah, but if it's not, I ain't going. It's a kind of double reinforcement. It's saying, I'm really serious. And I kind of feel that's where we want to be. We want to be where God's presence is. We want to be pursuing Him. Even before that section, Moses is saying to God, Now, if I have indeed found favour with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you. So that, that thing about wanting God's presence, but wanting our minds to be removed, what is that rewiring that James is talking about? So, um, just a quick, quick recap. Obviously, when we come to speak, those of us who get to speak, we think of the things that we've spoken to you last time as if it was one after the other. And it's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to quickly recap on some of the stuff so, so we have some semblance of the thing being joined together. So um, I spoke about a month ago, and we picked up on this thing. A soldier does not get involved in civilian affairs, uh, being under the command of Jesus, not following or justifying our whims or civilian affairs. So that whole thing about our need to get our minds sorted, get our way of responding. And then the other thing in Corinthians about beating our flesh into the right shape. Then uh, we picked up on this C.S. Lewis quote, ending the claim of self. It's a great thing. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. So here's my desires. There's God's desires. I'm walking up to myself, shooting myself in the head. I'm going to just go with God's stuff. And it gets to that bit at the end. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. That would be a great way to be, wouldn't it? Our thoughts, our dreams, our desires are God's desires. Yeah? Great way of moving on. We picked up on this song. Jimmy Needham. It's called Clear the Stage. 
And the key line in that is, anything I put before my God is an idol. And that's kind of part of the recap I want to pick up on. Those things of not putting those things in the way of God. So, a couple of thoughts. You may not be able to see this very well. I was fighting with my machine at various points. These are some random thoughts. But to understand, yeah, we can have, if we can have the lights off. If you promise not to go to sleep, we'll have the lights off. If you do go to sleep, I will select a suitably warm and sweaty teenager uh, to come and hug you, like happened to me on Friday night. Yes, I can't see Paisley Jr., because he was that sweaty individual that did hug on me. Right, he's there. Is he there? Is he suitably warm, or should we make him do a couple of laps? (laughs) Right, okay. Here's some interesting things. Uh, Some of you may have uh, picked up on these recently as well because we've been sharing some podcasts. An idol is no longer a little statue in the corner of my house. It is my mindset or my ideology. And when this collapses, where do I go? I can't let it collapse. That whole sense that that the whole way society looks, that whole thing, we have it it in our pocket. We have a little bit of an idol. My iPhone, my iPad, all those things. It starts with I. It's about me. Am I? I don't want to go into that too much today, but that whole thing about the whole thing about individualized stuff, personalized things, it feeds this concept of everything should be about me and my choice. We'll come back to that a bit. I had an interesting uh, chat with a teacher in a pub, and he was talking about his own wrestle to faith. I think he's on a faith journey. And he said, you know what, I just didn't want to let Jesus be boss. I want to be boss. In fact, my whole philosophy of life was that education was my religion. And he said, so I didn't want to surrender to Jesus. And I think that's so for many people. We don't want to surrender. We don't want to make Jesus boss. Okay? Here's the other thing. Um, uh, Jamie and I got to, uh, go to a conference with Tim Keller, one of the best preachers in, in the world, um, and he just threw out some little nuggets. One of these is the human heart never misses a chance to be self-righteous. Yeah? That self-righteousness means... I say, Richard, could I have that bottle of water? I'm supposed to get a bottle of water. Oh, I'm going to dry up. That's not what the self-righteousness means. Sorry, I broke <laughs> off there. I fl- that was a little bit of surrealism chucked in there. <laughs> right. I realised I wasn't going to make it through the sentence. Right. That self-righteousness, where it says, I can do it, I'm righteous in my own right, means I don't need God, because I'm self-righteous. I don't need God. I, I, can, I can save myself. That, that kind of, that stench of self-righteousness comes out in all different ways. Interesting, it always also comes out, this whole thing, beware of the nobility of victimhood. I've had all these wrongs done to me, I've had these things done to me. My circumstance means that I act in this way. It's really interesting when you're looking particularly around uh, different people who have been subjected to different issues. There is a real danger of victimhood. Now, as a white, somewhat middle-class male, I say somewhat middle-class, you should see the people I came from, but um, (laughs) I'm the one that is oppressing everyone else. I don't know if there are other white middle-class men here. Do you feel that you're oppressing everyone else? We are the problem, generally. Right, so obviously I I don't get to do this victim thing. But 
I've been treated in these ways. You know, we have these things. I've been treated in these ways. There's a kind of nobility we can take on. And you know what that does? It starts excusing behavior that's not right. Because I've had this stuff done to me. So this whole thing about the nobility of victimhood is something interesting to look at. There's a, there's a state of anxiety in society. We're worried about things. Not just personal anxiety, but kind of, oh, democracy is failing. These different things are happening. And I heard recently, someone talked about being plugged into a digital nervous system. The story he told is he was in Hawaii, travelling to the west coast of America. And while he was in Hawaii, he was in an earthquake, and the, the walls shook and all that kind of thing. He thought, oh, no, walls are shaking. That's, that's interesting. When he went on, a, I think it was a five-hour flight to California, as he arrived in California, all his friends were saying, oh, you're in an earthquake. Oh, you're right. And everyone else in the plane turned on their phone and said, oh, we're in an earthquake. Oh. They transported their worry that they didn't feel five hours ago, and suddenly they were like, oh, oh. They'd plugged into the digital nervous system that said, you've just been in an earthquake, you should worry. And it was like a delayed reaction. They'd actually been in the earthquake, had survived, and there was no problem, and then they felt anxiety afterwards. We see these things sometimes. You can be in a situation and then you see how the, the news or the people around you or how it's picked up on social media and it can't, starts to shape our reactions. So we can be in things. I've seen it happen a lot to myself. I've been in a situation. I've not reacted. And then I see other people's reaction. It starts to stir things up. In fact, it links with some of those other things. This, I tried to find, there's two pictures. Oh, we're not going to be able to see it. Okay, I'll have to point some things out to you. Right, this is the Queen visiting the BBC about three or four years ago. There was a corresponding picture, ooh, corresponding picture of her visiting the BBC in the 1950s. What you can't see here, well, you might see everyone's hands up. It was not a worship service. They are holding up their iPhones. And, they're, and you know what they're doing? They're not looking at the Queen, they're looking at this. They're viewing life through the screen, even though they're in it. They're receiving all their input through this screen. I've seen it happen. And I've done, I've done various things, and there's been things happening. Sometimes we just got to, we can't record it. we just got to live in the moment and that kind of thing. But they're receiving their input through the screen. That's the way the world is at the moment. We're getting, we're plugged in to digital things. It's our nervous system in that sense. But instead, we can have a non-anxious presence. We can have a presence of God that fills us and shows us the way to be. And we don't have to be tossed around by the tides of what we see happening, what people get excited about and the different things going on there. In fact, what we see, we see, that we see Christ reacting, or it seems to react to different points. And we can be like him, because the spirit of Christ resides in us. Remember we talked before about the curtain being torn and not being separated from the presence of God. We don't have to react to that around us. Jesus did not overturn the tables in the temple as an instant reaction. He'd been going there since at least the age of 12. It was the act that probably triggered his death. So if you think of it now, he goes into the temple... He throws over the tables, he, he yells at the people and says, this is my father's house, and you have turned it into a den of iniquity. He knew what he was doing. 
he was in control of his action, and he knew what the reaction would be as well. He wasn't getting stirred up. Hashtag whatever. I'm just jumping on the bandwagon, right? He was getting... He was in control the whole moment. He was choosing martyrdom rather than anxiety. I think that's an interesting place where we can choose to lay our life down rather than just reacting in a way. Let's see if we can just click on this speech. We'll just go for the short one. You can find it. There's a great... Great speech, lots of great speech by Martin Luther King. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I would like to speak like him. Even more, I'd like you lot to respond like them. That was Martin Luther King's last speech. I believe he was shot that night. He says, I do not fear any man. I have seen the promised land. I do not fear. I've seen... (laughs) Boy, he was taken at his word, wasn't he? And I think that's a similar thing between Jesus and turning over those tables. So Jesus knew what was coming. Kind of think Martin Luther King may know what's coming as well. That's a different place to be. I'm not calling us all to martyrdom just at the moment, but I am calling us to lay our lives down. And that's linked and similar in those ways. We don't have to react, we don't have to jump on the bandwagon. We can stand out and be different. We can be linked into what God's got for us. Yes? I don't want to just run with the crowd. I don't want to just be moved by the herd. I want to be where God wants me. If that means I have to be at the forefront of something great, if that means I have to be cold, burnt up for his fire, that's what I want as well. I was asked on Friday, I was talking to to my mentor. He said to me, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I know it sounds crass. I just want to be where God wants me to be. You know, I want it to say on my tombstone, well done, or on the book of life probably, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't even care what it is. I just want that. Because I know if I give my life to something which is eternal, it doesn't matter. We can be like Absalom who built up a monument to himself because he had no children. Monuments crumble. I want to be part of something that's eternal. 
I think eternity, I'll come to it later, eternity is in our heart. That's why we want things that are different. Oh, here we are. Come to it quicker than I thought. <laughs> right. Are you ready to be a little bit depressed? I've got to depress you so I can build you up later on, okay? Turn to the person next to you. Give them a bit of a wake-up call because say you're going to be depressed for a little while. For those of you, those of you young people, rub your heads. Go, rub, rub. Where's Rebecca? Rub. Right. Okay. Right. Rob. Okay. State of our nation. State of our country. I had an interesting meeting this week. Avra and I went with a couple of MPs that are just coming together just to pray. Labour MP, Tory MP, just coming together. They do not know what to do. They just say we've got to pray. State of nation, we've got a world that's in need of a saviour, right? Ever thus. But definitely family breakdown, abuse, child poverty... Trafficking, gun deaths, a fatherhood crisis. That's the world we live in. A polarised society. Here's an interesting thing. We talk about, oh, isn't it wonderful, you know, multicultural society, that kind of thing. Actually, we've got a bunch of different people from different races living in the same space, but not connected to one another, just in one place or the other. Dad and I were in uh, um, California one time, and we were with Noel Woodruff, and, uh, who's a guy from the Caribbean, and we were with David Kopp, who's a uh, uh, white Californian, and they were sitting in the front of the car, and we decided to... I don't know why we had to do this, but, but they were very keen to go and drive down in Compton. Compton's like, you know, gangland kind of area. And as we're driving through, and, and Noel was quite interested in kind of doing this with his fingers, pretending he was shooting a gun, and, you know, it was all interesting time. And... Uh, they said, uh, David turned to us and said, you realise everyone around will think we're cops. Why is that? It's just because we've got a white guy and a black guy sitting next to each other. And that's the world. There's, there's a mix physically, but not a mix in community and heart. So we're still polarised, we're not integrated. Heard a story, I may not get it right, but I heard a story. A couple of years ago, the bus companies, the night bus companies, started to look at their services because they realised that older people were travelling on the nights on the night buses to keep warm all night. That's the society we live in, because we've had this breakdown of family. We've not got a place for people to go. And what does the Bible say? It says that I will set the lonely in families. That's part of our role, isn't it? We've got. Two political parties fighting over different versions of the past. One of these uh, MPs said, in my party, they want to roll back to the 70s, and the other party, they want to roll back to the 50s, and I don't want either of it. Normally, in times of crisis, a leader raises up. He may be a good leader, maybe a bad leader. We have no leaders. We have no vision. Where there is no vision... Depends on your Bible version. The people perish. People cast off restraint. I think we've seen both of that. We've seen Brexit. Okay, whether you're for Brexit or against Brexit, it was a surprise, wasn't it? Um, we've seen Trump. That was a bit of a surprise as well. If that was a little bit more notable. We've seen Macron. 
in France, the president of France comes from a party that didn't exist two years ago. The leader of Czechoslovakia, all over the place. We've got different things going in Italy. Everything's been thrown off. There's a restlessness. There's a dissatisfaction with the status quo. You know, sometimes when the weather's about to change, it would be nice to have a weather change every now and again, you can smell something in the air. I think there's something in the air. So although we're in a desperate stage, I feel a, a place of hopefulness. Yeah? And a lot of people are, um, they're feeling despair at these things. They're feeling despair about Brexit and Trump and all those kind of things. But I feel we're getting to the end of ourselves so that people may say, we need God. Those, the ways, the things we've done have not worked. That people may be in a place of ready to turn back to God. That teacher I was talking to has been around a whole bunch of us for a long time been connecting but now he's starting to turn to God people are used up there's no more credit left in their life bank there's a great film called Woodlawns about American football team true story um, in the um, uh, in the whole civil rights period in the states and um, uh, they're they're reintegrating schools or integrating schools black and white schools and a revival comes to that football team. And I, I've watched the film several times. I can't, I can't work out what the thing was. It's just someone just said, we can live differently, we can be differently, and, and, and it seemed to appeal to people. And at one point, the coach is looking at his football team, his American football team, and he's looking at the city outside. And he's not a follower at this point. He says, how comes the only place where black and white get on is in my football team? Look at us today. How comes the only place where different people from different groups get on is within church? We are showing that. I'd, and sometimes people say this in a bit of a crass way. But my best friends are not white. They're black. Well, some of the black friends would say that some of the other black friends are not quite black, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> That's unusual, yeah? And okay, I'm just doing it on colour, but there's other things, yeah? Rich and poor. We exist side by side. It's the church. Because you know what? Our identity is not within our race. It's not within our finances. It shouldn't be within our culture. It's because we are from the same father, yeah? And of course, the moment race, culture... All those things start to become bigger, bigger, then we do find disunity because actually it knocks the father out and another God becomes central. Yeah? Right. We need a move of God in our nation. I talked to you about this last time. I've been picking up some stuff. Revival is preceded by what? Can anyone remember? People in my group might remember. Oh, you're asleep already. White hot faith, well done. Man in the corner. White hot faith, who wants it? Right, remember our, uh, we, we did a couple of songs last time and one of them was Change Me, O Lord. So I want to come from a point of humility, right? 
but into the answer to that question, on the basis of your responses to me, white hot faith, who wants it, not us. Because I said to you lot at the end of the last meeting, I said, come and talk to me about white hot faith, who wants it. And you know, not one, not one person came to me. I think I probably wouldn't have come as well. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Now, interestingly, someone in my group, we were talking about in my group, someone said, well, what is white hot faith? Well, that at least is a response. What does it mean? And we'll talk a little bit about this. But it certainly means stirring ourselves up. Because I don't think there's room for, to be passive in this stuff. So we want white hot faith. Yeah, I think you do want it. No project, no community relationship can substitute for the presence and move of God. I think we picked that up from what David was saying last time. We can have great projects, we have great things, but we need us individually to be shining lights for God. We can't have a great LCP or great community resources or a great hub that doesn't quite do it. We can listen to testimonies amongst us. We should hear again Fatima's testimony about meeting with Jesus. We need to meet with Jesus. We can have all the other stuff. We've got to do all the other stuff, there's no question. But we need to meet with God. Two stories that I can think of. I wanted, to, I wanted to do a whole bunch of stories about revival, but I want to pick up two stories here now. Um, for some of you guys, you were around during the late, uh, mid and late uh, 90s, and we had what was called the Toronto Blessing. It was an interesting time. People, you know, every time you had a meeting, there was people laughing, and it wasn't because there were jokes. It was because God seemed to move on people. And uh, things would happen. And, you know, we got to do funny things. One of our, I remember going to a meeting, and every time uh, there was a meeting, people told people to stand up at the end. Because it's much easier to fall over if you're standing up. That seemed to be the thing. And, uh, and, and there was lots of funny things happened, and I don't know what all the longevity was, what the result was, but I tell you what, I knew what had happened in me. I went to more things, I sought out more stuff, I did more praying than I ever done before or since. Because I was hungry for the presence of God. We went, we, a bunch of us would go out midweek and diff, we'd drive all over London, try and find things happening, that kind of thing, because we were hungry. So I don't know what the results are, I don't know all the different things that went on, but I tell you what, there was a hunger. And I think that's part of white hot faith. There was a hunger. But interestingly, it didn't come beforehand. I, wasn't, I didn't hunger it into being. I saw it and wanted more. Yeah? And uh, lots of exciting things happened. Um, I was, uh, around that time, I also heard about the uh, revival happening in Argentina. It, uh, there was a speaker at a youth conference. Uh, his name was Claudio Cabrera, I think. And he told two stories. Firstly, he got my attention because he said, I'm in Britain, I would like to thank you for beating us in the uh, Falklands War. That got my attention. It's not often you hear that, is it? No. Um, he said, because that took away our personal pride and it pushed us to God. I thought that was interesting. Then he went on to tell a story, and it's not, I don't know if it's a revival story, but it certainly stirs me. He said there was a guy walking, uh, a guy who was part of their local town. I don't know, kind of trampy kind of guy. He smelt so bad that you crossed the road when he was coming, so you didn't have to walk near him, Right? And Claudio felt that God said to him, you need to go up and hug that guy. There was a period of wrestling over this. But he kind of built up his courage, so to speak. He went up to that guy and hugged him. 
and said these infamous words, Jesus loves you, let's go for a shower. <laughs> hey, it's real, isn't it? We don't have to accept people in their filth. We have to accept people in their filth, but we don't want to leave them in their filth. Yeah? That man said that not another human being has touched me for 10 years. So it needed us to be God's hands and his feet. It's a song that Keith Green sang. It needed that act. For me, I don't know, it just kind of wraps into things of revival. That it kind of triggers stuff, makes stuff happen. Jesus is our hope. No ifs, no buts. And I believe there is that stirring heart cry in our nation. I thought this was a 24-7 thing. I've been looking for it. But anyway, we want to act like it all depends on them and pray like it all depends on him. The second part is a true bit. <laughs> but there is a part that we have to play. So preparing for harvest. In... Uh, Matthew 29, uh, sorry, Matthew 9, verse 37. Jesus looks out on the people he's speaking to and he sees, his heart is filled with compassion. He sees all these issues and he turns to his disciples and say, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. And that's kind of where I'm at. But it's interesting to get the context of that. That's one of the reasons I'm encouraging guys to bring your Bibles, to look around in terms of context. And we're not going to go through this now. But before this point, he forgives sin... It upsets the religious folk of the time, the self-righteous folk. The person he forgives comes for healing. He doesn't ask to be forgiven of sin, he asks for healing. Interesting, isn't it? Forgiving someone, sin, forgiving someone who's not been asked for forgive, asking for forgiveness. He goes and hangs out with a corrupt collaborator. Um, a taxman of the time. He announces a new way related to religion, fasting and grace, a grace system rather than an earning system. He brings a girl back to life. There's a secret healing of an unclean person. He recognizes faith in someone and heals them. He drives out demons. When he drives out demons of people, the people around say, oh, he's doing that by the power of the devil. That's the context where he says, my goodness, Send forth workers, Lord. Feels a little bit like us. All our different crises going on. Unclean people. Corrupt systems. We need to see workers come forward. And we're not talking Jesus. We're talking us with Jesus. We're the workers. We're the people who are being called out. And I've been puzzling this for a while. I talked to Dad a little bit about this. I, I feel logically... I'll say logically, it's Daniel logic rather than biblically. I've been searching. Sometimes we search the Bible to try and make it say the things we want to say. I'm just owning up. This is my logic. We won't see harvest if we're not on the farm. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. Harvest may happen, but I won't see it. Okay? I have a sense that if we want to see, our, our commission is go out and make disciples. I think that to make disciples, we need to be discipled ourselves. It kind of makes sense. Yeah? In that sense. Our personal sanctification or becoming more like Jesus is important. It's obviously important. We're told to do it. Our readiness has a part to play if we're to see harvest. So does harvest depend on us? Our seeing it 
is dependent on us. And I know what I want. So you guys can wrestle with the, oh, it's not up to us, it's up to God stuff. Personally, I want to be involved. So I'm going to get involved. And that's my little wrestle. That's what I've come to. That's my little logic in that sense. Right, Isaiah 61. Give each other a poke because it's sleepy in here. Some of you got heavy eyelids. It's very hot. It's very hot. I get to stand up. It's hotter for me than it is for you on the basis of physics. I got a chair. You want me to sit down? Okay. Right, Isaiah 61. Let's, uh, I'll just take you through that quickly. Let's see how we're doing for time. Right, okay. Isaiah 61 definitely relates to uh, Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 58, 12. So, for those of you who are into that, you can have a little look at Jude Coins, uh, course, and I'll come back to that. Thank you to Sylvia for helping me with some extra uh, stuff in relation to this. Uh, uh, DC's David Cassidy, he was pointing out that those transformed by the gospel become agents of transformation, restoration in the city. Let's have a quick look through this. I love this. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Do you remember the whole thing with Martin Luther King? The responsive congregation? Feel free. Right. Just start again. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You can even preempt if you want. Shout some bits out. To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Right, here's the bit I like. This is the bit I want us to look at. They, not me, the rest of it was about me, now they, right? They will be called righteous trees or oaks, yeah? Planting by the Lord to glorify him. Now here we go. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And it goes on another bit. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. I want to emphasize that stuff. If they are going to go and do those things, they are going to have to have some training. We can't, we can't just do a kind of, hey, you need to meet with Jesus, good, done, bash, Right? Because they need to be building, restoring, and to be called righteousness. To be called oaks of righteousness, yeah? There's an apprenticeship needed. And then we will. There's that thing about the priestliness of us still. It's not hit and run evangelism. I was reminded, I was looking about this. Those boy soldiers that were used for destruction through a process of meeting with God and the discipleship became, in orange, the Ebola rescue team. Those people who were rejected in their communities because of the killing they were done could reach out to those who were rejected because they were survivors of Ebola. Yeah? We're part of that. 
Yes. That's the turnaround. That's the turnaround. And it didn't happen overnight. There was training. There was prayer. There was pain. There was heartache. There was backwards as well as forwards. David Casty sent this to me. He said, Jesus employs Isaiah 61 to inaugurate his ministry. That means he's bringing about the real and ultimate end of exile. Those who hear him are called, uh, are the called who rebuild ancient ruins, the temple complex. We're looking at this a little bit. And restore the streets, the places of dwelling and community. The gospel is intensely personal, but not exclusively personal. Its impact is communal. It affects the way we live. It's cultural. It affects the way we think and the way we act. And it's liturgical. It's about the way we worship. Yeah? That's the difference that has to be made. Yeah? So we have this situation with the fall. So in the Garden of Eden, the devil comes along and says... Eat this fruit. If you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. What was the thing they missed? What was the thing they missed? Humans were already made in the image of God. He was giving them a promise which they already had. But they wanted to be like God. They wanted not to have God to tell them what to do. Lost me pages. Right. When we have someone, uh, when you, if you've ever been apprenticed, there is an interesting thing about uh, the master craftsman, is sometimes it takes them a little while to warm up to teaching you stuff. And I remember a number of times travelling, and you ask someone for directions, they say, oh, you can't get here, there from here. You think, oh, that's not helpful, is it? <laughs> you can't get there. Sometimes you have to start from a different place, Yeah? And we have to start from a different place if we are to get this thing. I'm into right regime change. That means a total change of my life. A total change of your life. I don't want you to be boss of your life anymore. We need that to change. And that was the thing that that teacher was talking about, the need for re- regime change. So the desire that comes about in the fall is that we are to be gods. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. It's a challenge throughout history. It's that self-salvation my earning way to heaven. We have to put to get death this idolatry that resides in our culture. In Western culture, the idolatry is that choice of the individual. In Eastern culture, it's the family. These things are put before God. Yeah? Anything before my God is an idol. Remember the song? So if it's, I want my choice, I want to do my thing, there you are, there's a Western cultural idolatry. If the family... And doing the things in the family is not necessarily right, but we've got to protect the family. That's an example within Eastern cultures, those things. One of the ways we put these things to death is by submitting to one another. Because it ain't natural. It's not a natural way of being. There's a great clip in West Wing that I was going to show you, but I knew I'd be short of time. But it's about this whole thing that often we, we see this underlying message in the Bible is about be submitting to one another. It's not about men, it's not about women, it's not about children. It's about be submitted to one another because we don't want to be. Our natural state is, I'm the boss, I'm God. Don't you tell me what to do. I've got my rights. I don't want to do that. I don't want to. Yeah? We're putting that to death. Accountability is inviting questions. We saw that in, how many times 
was Debbie mentioned as asking awkward questions. She's available for anyone else. <laughs> Martin would prefer her to spend time with you than him. <laughs> available on the free transfer. Right. With discipleship, someone else is a master craftsman and you are the apprentice. You have signed a contract of interference. It doesn't mean that they're going to ask you questions when you want to be asked. They're going to ask you questions when they're gone. They can say, don't do it like that. You can't get here. You can't get there from here. Yeah? So it's a call to discipleship again. And it's in opposition to my right to take offense. That self-righteous human heart that says, I can make it on myself. That perceived nobility of victim. If, I, if I'm taking on a craftsman's, if I'm, if I'm being apprenticed, and I'm saying I'm working on something, I'm working on a table or something, and they say, oh no, you can't do it like that. I can't say, well, I've got my personal choice. I want to put the legs on the top of the table. You ain't going to learn. There's that humility that comes in. I tell you, that's one thing I picked up from meeting with those MPs. There was a humility. It was somewhat scary that none of them know of a leader in 650 of them, but there was a humility in that. And that's the point we have to get to. Uh, Joe Wright told me a story. They went to the, um, Joe and Richard went uh, to the zoo and um, everyone was watching the lionesses walking around. But when the lion came out, everyone went quiet. The animals went quiet. And when he roared, things went quiet, minus quiet. I don't know how you quiet then some. Boy, do we need the roar of God. Our nation's in a state. Talked about that. It needs revival. We need enthusiasm. We're listening to some stuff. You know Charles Wesley and Wilberforce, they, they really cussed them. They said, those people, they're enthusiasts. That's how very English of us. The best, the best cuss we've got is, you're a bit enthusiastic. I can't see Fernando. I think if I see if Fernando would understand that from a Latin perspective. Oh, you're a bit enthusiastic. That's a bit over the top. We need to have enthusiasts. We need, we need us to be enthusiasts. We need to break a sweat. So what is our response? I think our response is this. To submit to one another. That's part of discipleship, and I'm going to keep coming back to that. To call on God for the renewing of our mind, the rewiring that James was talking about. Not to defend our corrupted and comfortable selves. It's not conditional, it's a God renew my mind. We're looking for that, that move of God. Remember that, that whole thing, the cloud the size of a hand. They were looking for the move of God, looking for the rains, and getting behind it. And I think we need to get on our knees and pray. In other words, it's white hot faith. I thought I'd give you the answer even though you didn't ask. But that's the challenge for us. Yeah? So, we need to finish. But if you want prayer, I think it's that thing about calling for God to renew your mind and looking, where do I put myself where I can be accountable, where I can be discipled? Yeah? Amen?